We are uh, choosing life, and uh, we started this message a few weeks ago, and I want to uh, just give a quick little um, snapshot of where we've been going, but I, I want to jump into where we're going, because this is this whole, I, I believe this series is just something God put on my heart uh, at the end of last year, and that this is a word for us for this whole year, is, is life. And, and so we've been talking about what does it mean to choose life. And in Deuteronomy chapter 30, uh, I'm not going to read all the verses, but in verse 19, um, God says, I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants will live. And then John 10, 10, the thief has come to steal, kill and destroy. I have come to give you life and life more abundantly. This is what Jesus is talking about. This is what God in the Old Testament was talking about, is that we would choose life. And he says, every day I put before you. Life and death. Please, please choose life. So we've been going through all this stuff. We've talked about um, what that means in the context of uh, zoe, which is eternal life, versus biological life and psychological or mental life that God has given to every living creation. He's given biology, bios. Suke, he's given every, the ability to have human consciousness, to think through things in a human interaction. But Zoe is a life that only God gives. So we've talked through a number of things. I'm not going to go back over all of those. But verses that are really powerful for us as a church, even why one of the main reasons our church is called Revolution. You know, and, and, and we know that, um, I was just sharing with uh, Sherry. She comes from uh, a church that I was a part of for many years in Southern California. I was on staff there and then planted a church out of there in 2000 um, in Southern, South Orange County. And so she's here visiting uh, her friend, and so it's great to have both of them with us. But I was, I was telling Sherry that one of the things that we've walked through this process of, of really launching a new church, that this is a brand new church, started last summer, and it was based on a lot of these premises. What does that mean? You know, are we going to pick up guns and fight? No, no. Are we going to take up signs and pick it? No. No, it's a spiritual revolution that, you know, Christ said, that he, it tells us in the Old Testament that he was bringing a new government on his shoulders. He was bringing a new kingdom that didn't live according to the kingdom of this world. It didn't live according to the principles of this world. Now, I love America, and America's great. But understand, it's still a fallible system. Democracy's the best thing that we got going. But God says, guess what? In Christ, you're no longer an American first. You're no longer... Wherever your country you're from, that's not your primary identity. You're not a female. You're not a male. No, it says, first and foremost, you are a follower of Jesus Christ. That becomes our identity. Because we're now citizens of a different kingdom. And it says, in this kingdom, you don't own things. You have access. You're stewards. See, we have access. It says we can boldly enter the throne of grace. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of all the world. It says that we can boldly come into his presence. You couldn't ever do that in any kingdom with any natural king. If you boldly came in there more times than not, unless the king really had, you had favored the king, it's like off with your head. But it says we can come to the one that created everything boldly because of Christ's death, his blood that washed away our sins. It says we have access to things you couldn't possibly have access to apart from the kingdom of God. So two weeks ago, we started talking about another part of, you know, choose life, 
which is dealing with, oh, I got back to, sorry, Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. I want to read these. This is Jesus. He was in the synagogue. They handed him the scroll of Isaiah, and Jesus flipped to this section. Well, he didn't flip. I guess he rolled to this section, right? It was in the scroll, so, you know, it was, I guess he had to, you know, roll it around until he got to this section. As out of the book of Isaiah, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And this is why we're revolution. This is what we're called to be, is to understand that the Spirit of the Lord is upon us to set the captive free. We are not called to live in bondage to the things of this world. But Jesus says that whom the Son has set free is free indeed. And so part of this is even this whole conversation, what we're having, is that we would have life that is in Christ, which is free. Not freedom as the world sees it. How many of you know there are lots of people that they're not in, quote, prison, but they are completely in bondage? And there are people who are in prison who are completely free. Paul wrote the epistle, all the epistles, all the letters of Ephesians, Galatians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, all these, he wrote them while he was in prison. He was waiting to die. He was shackled between two Roman officers on either side of him. And this is where he says, hey, let me tell you, rejoice. Let me tell you again, rejoice, for the Lord is near. He's not sitting on the top of the mountain. He is sitting in the bottom of a dungeon waiting to die. And there he says, um, and there he says, I'm going to trust what God says. And this is the life that he's called us to live. That in many ways is contrary to our natural thinking. And you go, well, because a lot of people will say, well, you know, God's, you know, given us some mind. Yes, he has. But as I like to say, has your mind ever misled you? Have your emotions ever misled you? Yeah, okay. So maybe our mind and our emotions aren't always right. But God says, guess what? I know everything. So we go, well, let's see. Should I trust me? who obviously doesn't get everything right, or God who says he knows everything and he gets everything right. So two weeks ago, we started talking about sex. And that this is a big issue in our culture. I mean, it always has been because we can see, looking in Scripture, I mean, number one, we go all the way back to Genesis, and it says that God created Adam and Eve, and then he says, hey, be fruitful and multiply. This was his command. So guess what? This is part of God's plan. He knew about sex before humans did. He created it that way. And so, real quickly, I'm just going to talk about three purposes, We've, just as a, re, uh, a quick review. We talked about three purposes, according to the Scripture, that are the purposes of sex. One, it's a spiritual union. This is the number one reason that God created it. It says in Genesis 2.24, For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother, he'll be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Again, we understand that That's not a physical union, it's a spiritual union. It's why people, when they have sex outside of marriage, that there is a soul tie that that happens, that connects them to that person. And I've talked to many people, and I said, man, I don't know why, but but I I just can't get this person out of my life, even though, you know, all we did, we had sex a few times. Well, it's because it wasn't ever designed to be a physical act. It was designed to be a spiritual one. And we're going to talk about that. I don't know that we'll get to it today, hope for sure next week, about what are soul ties and how do we break those. Because, again, we get it. Many of us have done things different than the way God would want us. Forgiveness, total forgiveness in Christ, and redemption, but also sometimes things have to be broken. And so we'll talk about that. Well, the second 
Purpose is, it's a biological act for reproduction. I was just talking about that. God created sex to be the way to recreate life for humans. He could have created any way, but he created this. And so because God is the creator of life, he's the giver of life, it makes life sacred. It's one of the reasons why we stand so strongly opposed to abortion. Because it's in the face of God who gives life. It's saying, well, it's my choice. Well, no. You can't make life. You don't get to take life. And, and so one of the second re- main reasons is that it's a biological act of reproduction. And the third one is it's a physical pleasure. God did create sex to bring pleasure. But the problem in our culture is we have elevated this aspect to be the number one reason. And so we get all kinds of craziness. You know, friends with, uh, friends with benefits, you know, no strings attached. People thinking, hey, I just get to go do my booty call and do whatever. And God says, no, 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 no. No, that, that's supposed to be physical pleasure within the confines of a husband and a wife in a loving, committed, covenanted relationship. Now, understand that all of these are important. But the number one is what we got to keep our focus on. Because if God designed sex to be the spiritual union of a man and a woman becoming one, it's this picture of the intimacy that he wants to have with us. And you're saying, well, that sounds twisted. God wants it. No, God doesn't want to have sex with us. Don't, don't misunderstand that. No, that's why he said it's a, it's a spiritual. It's the most intimate thing between two human beings that's meant to be a representative of the intimacy that God desires with us. And so when we see God as this, you know, grandfatherly figure sitting up in heaven just waiting until we can screw up and getting us, no, that's not who he is. When we see God as this passive creator, see, there's a lot of people, they think he did create it all, but then he just kind of left it unto its own and just stepped back and say, well, let's see what they do with it. No, 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 no. God is integrally involved with us, desires a personal relationship more personal than any relationship you can have with another human being. But the closest that it can become is a husband and a wife. So last week we started talking about sexual immorality. Um, what is sexual immorality? Or in some uh, translations it calls it fornication. Uh, not a word that we get thrown around a lot anymore. You know, don't, don't be fornicators. Be like, what is a fornicator, right? Well, the Greek word is pornea. So we don't have to think very hard to go, gosh... That sounds a lot like another word that gets used a lot in our culture, right? Pornography. So sexual immorality or fornication has to do with sexual sin. And and if you look up the definition, it usually will say um, sex between two people who are not married. Now that's true, but it it goes deeper than that. It's basically any sexual sin that does not... Um, happen, well, any, any sexual sin that, or any kind of perversion that happens outside of marriage. Well, I'm not saying it's, no, that sounds bad. I'm not saying that the perversion is okay inside of marriage. I'm saying any sexual sin or perversion and including, including sex outside of marriage. But it includes pornography, includes anything that causes you to be aroused sexually or have inappropriate sexual thoughts. So we talked about that last week. Who can be sexually immoral? Anybody. Married people, single people, young people, old people, men, women, everybody. Matthew 20, or 5, 27, again, Jesus said, um, it, used, it was in old, it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say that whoever looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, Jesus always took things beyond the physical dimension into the heart. 
the very seat of who we are, how we think, how we live. And we're going to look at a couple of those real quickly um, that just deals with the heart. Because this is what Jesus said in a few chapters later in Matthew 15. The Pharisees, as they always were, they were trying to make Jesus look bad. They, that, was, that was basically, they woke up in the morning and they were, they were trying to figure out ways, how can we trip up Jesus today? How can we show him up? You know, and, and a lot of times we think that, that their motives were bad. I don't know if their motives were bad. I, I really think that most of them thought they were doing God's business, that, that he was a false teacher, and so they were helping God out. As it turned out, they obviously weren't, and it was really about themselves and protecting their power. But I think when it came down to a lot of them were doing it maybe, you know, seemingly from, you know, better motives, but they were doing it completely wrong. And so Jesus is speaking to them in chapter 15, verse 16, and he says, are you also still without understanding? Actually, in this one, he's speaking to his disciples because his disciples um, don't understand what Jesus is saying. The, the Pharisees called Jesus in, on the carpet because he says, your disciples, they're eating food without going and washing their hands. And it was this whole ceremonial cleansing that, that they had to go through so that they wouldn't eat anything that would be, you know, dirty or whatever. And he says, your disciples aren't doing that. And that's when Jesus then says, um, are you also still without understanding? Verse 17, do you not yet understand that whatever, whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. So here Jesus lists this whole um, laundry list of things that um, defile a person that come out of their heart. And one of those is fornication or sexual immorality. So we hear that Jesus says that these proceed out of our heart. Now, what's frightening with that is there's other verses, and many of us know these, it says that what? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I don't know if you've ever been convicted of things that came out of your mouth. I am oftentimes, I'm like, oh, I don't want to believe that's coming out of my heart. But that's what Jesus says, right? That out of the abundance of the heart. So it's not just that that's in my heart, but it's saying that that's there in abundance. Because if it wasn't there in abundance, it wouldn't be coming out of my mouth. That's even more frightening. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life says that what will determine the way that you live your life comes out of your heart. So it says protect it. <coughs> and Jesus here in Matthew 17 says, out of the heart proceed all of these things, evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. But Jesus in John chapter 7, verse 38 says, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. So we look and we go, is what's coming out of my mouth more demonstrative of the list that Jesus said here in John 15, or in Matthew 15? Or is it rivers of living water? You know, what is it that's proceeding via my heart through my mouth? We looked in... 1 Corinthians 6, I'm not going to revisit all of that, but 
If you, have, if you weren't here, or even if you didn't really study, I go challenge you, write down 1 Corinthians 6, 9-20. to Go spend some time there, because Paul gives a very similar list as Jesus did in, in uh, Matthew 15, but he is specifically talking to the church. He, he's, not writing, he's not just talking to people. Jesus was just talking to whoever was there. Paul is specifically writing to the church, and if you, he, he, he lists this whole laundry list of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God, and he says, but, in verse 11, and some, such were some of you. And he's talking about fornicators, adulterers, adulterer, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortion. This is the list. And he says, some of you were like that, but not any longer. He said, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in Christ. That's past tense. You're not like that anymore. And so Paul goes on and says, so should we continue to act like those that we were when now we're dead to sin and we're alive in Christ? That those things are dead to me. We said, you know, it's like the old, you know, mafia dead. You're, you're dead to me. That's what we got to tell our flesh. You're dead to me. You're dead. And we have to remind it because, see, our spirit is made alive in Christ, but our flesh has to keep being reminded because our flesh is just our flesh. And our flesh wants what? What our flesh wants. Understand, your flesh is always going to want what the flesh wants. What got redeemed was your spirit. Our mind is being transformed, what? By the renewing of Christ through the Word. But our flesh is still our flesh. And so our flesh is going to keep acting like our flesh. So remember that Satan's job, his purpose, his mission statement, is to still kill and destroy. That's what he's about. And, and so it's easy for us, even though we have been washed clean by the blood of Christ, if we've acknowledged that we've repented of our sins, asked Christ to be the Lord of our life, it says we've been washed clean. We're white as snow. Sin has been dealt with. It's gone. We're now righteous in our spirit as He is righteous. Holy as He is holy. But understand that it's very easy for us to fall back into sin, especially sexual sins, if we let the flesh determine what's going on in our life. And we hear all these things. I'm, I'm, I'm constantly reminded of how our culture allow, or how we the church allow the culture to define what we should believe and how we live. I see it over and over again. I, I mean, we were just talking last night, this movie Noah that is just coming out, and, and there are all these Christian leaders that are coming out promoting it. And, and we're, we're going, why, why would they do this? It's not a Christian movie. I mean, the guy who, who directed it is, is a self-proclaimed atheist. Made no attempt to keep it true to the Bible. And he said that, which is fine. People can do whatever they want, right? But what we're trying to understand is, why do Christian leaders feel they need to come out and promote it and get Christians to go see it. I, I mean, we're just going, we don't get it. Why? I mean, just leave it alone. People can go if they want to. But why are you actually putting your name on the line and saying, you need to go see this? I, I don't understand it. But yet somehow we can be in this thing. I was just reading this week in John chapter 12, where it says that they were more worried that people did not follow Jesus... Because they were, more, they were more worried about being um, ple- pleased by man instead of pleased by God. 
You know, they were more worried about what the people out there had to say about them than what God had to say about them. And you know, whoa, you go, wait a minute. Wait a minute. So if Satan's purpose is to still to kill and destroy, then we have to be careful that we're not allowing the culture, but we're coming back to say, what does the Word of God say? See, I, I hear people say, well, you know, I mean, the Bible was written a long time ago. I mean, it's time for God to get into the 21st century. I mean, seriously. I mean, that stuff. I mean, maybe back in the day. No, it says in Hebrews 13.8 that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he said is what he says. What, who he is is who he is. God simply said, I am. What's that mean? He means, I'm it. I don't change. That's what it tells us in James. He doesn't change like shifting shadows. God doesn't ever change. Who he is is who he is. He does not allow the culture to define him, but we come with Christ to define the culture. He says, I'm bringing a different culture. I mean, what happens, Meixing, when you put a different culture into your experiments, right? It changes everything, right? See, that's the way we're supposed to be. When you infuse a Christian into the mix, they're supposed to bring a different culture. All of a sudden, things that were comfortable there shouldn't be comfortable anymore. Not because we're condemning anyone, but the Spirit of God lives in me. So where I show up, something should change. Because there is a different culture, a supernatural culture, that now I'm saying is my culture. I'm not saying it's part of me, I'm saying it is me. It's the only part of me that lives forever. And yet so often we we say, well, you know, that doesn't work in the real world. I mean, come on. Really? I mean, you you think, I mean, God wants you to give 10% at least of whatever you give to Him? That's crazy. That doesn't work in the real world. Oh, what? You think God doesn't live in the real world? God created the world. God's world, by the way, the spiritual realm, is the real world. We have been led to believe that this world is the real world. It is not, because everything we see is going away. It's going away. Probably 100 years from now, none of these chairs will exist, at least not as we see them. Guess what? Neither will you. Not in this place, not in this flesh. People say, well, you know, God can't really expect us to, you know, we're single. I mean, we got, he gave us, you know, these sexual desires and these urges. He can't really expect us not to have sex. I mean, I, I read ChristianMingle.com. Um, they did a survey just a little short time ago asking their uh, members their kind of views on sex. It was disturbing. 61% said they were fine with casual sex. What does that mean? It means just having sex with whomever you want to have sex with. 11% said they would have to be in love, whatever that means, in order to have sex. And another 5% said, well, they would wait until they're engaged. There were only 11% of the people that said, I am waiting until I get married to have sex. Now, again, do we understand it's a challenge, it's a struggle? Yes. I've shared with before. I was 45 when we got married. Struggled, yes, but for 45 years, managed with, through the grace of God to not have sex. And I don't like to think that I'm that odd. As I tell people, it wasn't because there wasn't opportunities. Is it hard? Yes. 
Did God place them there? Yes. Did he put confines and boundaries on it? Yes. Why? For your good. For my good. And you say, well, you know, I mean, God doesn't really expect us to be truthful all the time, right? I mean, you know, sometimes you got to tell a little white lie because, you know, it's going to hurt somebody or it just makes it easier on me. I mean, it's not a big deal. It's just a little lie. Let me ask you a question. Is there such a thing as a little lie? Here, I'll put it this way. I was in sixth grade. I had a sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Barnett. Mrs. Barnett was a taskmaster. She was the hardest teacher I ever had, all the way even through college. Um, but I'll tell you what, man, I learned a lot in sixth grade. But I can remember Miss Barnett, she used to give us true and false tests. And you know what I found out? It did not matter if 99% of the statement was true. It might just be all of instead of most of. And what was it? False. How arrogant of Mrs. Barnett to tell me that I was wrong. It was 99% right. But it wasn't true. See, one of the problems is that somehow we've gotten to a place where we're giving ourselves a pass on a lot of sin in our life. And again, am I saying we're living perfect? No. But what I am saying is, is that through the power of Christ that lives in us, He's given us the power over sin. So we can choose not to sin. So when we do sin, we like, as 1 John 1 9 says, man, we quickly come and confess our sin. And he's faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. Thank you, Jesus. But understand that we don't choose to live there. It's like I can go out and roll in the mud. In fact, I've done that sometimes. I've actually gone out and been a part of a thing called the mud run multiple times. I've got some crazy pictures. I mean, I am covered in mud. Mud is on my teeth. I'm so covered in mud. My wife does not ever want to do that. But I had fun doing it. I'd get people doing it. We would have a great time, man. We would just be covered in mud. But guess what? I don't live there. I do not live there. When I got done from there, let me tell you, I took a really long shower and got all that mud and dirt off of me. It's like, guess what? Yeah, do we still struggle at times with sin? Yeah, but we don't live there anymore. We don't live there. Oh, okay, man, I'm just looking to go, wow. Okay, well, we're going to jump into this because I want us to talk today specifically about some of these areas and how do we deal with them? How do we get free? Because, like I just told you, this, the survey from Christian Mingle, um, another big issue in our world today is pornography. Um, I wish it wasn't an issue in the church. It is. Um, did you know that the, por- the porn industry generates $13 billion a year? 13 billion with a capital B. Internet porn is $3 billion a year. One in five mobile searches. So one in five searches on people's phones and tablets are for porn. Whoops. Okay, don't hear that, Siri. (laughs) I'm going to get myself in trouble. But what about the church? Well, the statistics in the church are that 50% of all Christian men are addicted to porn. Not, not actually just look at porn, addicted to porn. And here's the real kicker. 20% of all Christian women are addicted to porn. Now, I don't share this to make anybody feel guilty. I've, I've shared before, and happily I will share that. There was a time in my life I was addicted to pornography, and I didn't think I would ever be free. 
but, but Christ set me free. So I mean there's never a struggle? No, if there's something that Satan has had a, a foothold in your life, you're going to have to guard that. As it even says, you know, guard your heart because out of it comes the wellsprings of life, the issues of life. So does it mean we guard it? Yes. But I share these things because Jesus wants us to be free. That's why that, those verses that Jesus read out of Isaiah are, are fundamental to who we are as a church. He's come to set the captive free. Open the eyes of the blind. Open the ears of the deaf. We don't want to be a place where people come, they feel bad, and they leave the same way they came. We want them to leave different through the power of Jesus Christ. Because that's what I know. Not what I believe, it's what I know. Because I've experienced it. But somehow, we can do one of two things. We can live in this place of guilt and shame because we, we, live, we, we have a cycle. And again, it doesn't have to be a sexual sin. This could be any area. It could be, it would, could be eating. You know, this is one we don't talk about a lot in the church. Gluttony. Do you know gluttony is in a lot of these lists with everything else? Is it just because somebody's really overweight? No, it has to do with food dominates the way that you think and the way that you live. It doesn't matter what the area is. Jesus wants us to be free. It could just be selfishness. I'm just, you know, committed to doing what I want. And you know what, God, you just got to be okay with it. He says, no, I got, I got so much of a better plan for you. So we, we tend to end up in one side, either kind of out of this legalism, like I got to do the right thing, and so when I don't, I feel bad. And so what happens? When you feel bad, then you do it again. You know, I mean, it kind of becomes this, you know, self-propelling you know, um, destructive behavior. But then the other side of that is, well, you know, hey, there's grace in Christ. I can just kind of do whatever, you know, Jesus just forgives me. There's truth to that. But understand that as Paul says, and, uh, you know, it's in Romans chapter 6, you know, where Paul says, verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? That it says, no, we died to sin, it's over, we don't have to live in it anymore. Why would you choose? I mean, imagine if, you know, you got home tonight and, and you crawl into your bed and somebody put some roadkill in your bed. I mean, that would just be nasty, right? But you're just like, oh, dude, I'm tired. I'm just so tired. And you just curl up in that bed with that roadkill and you're just like, it's all good. And then the next day, you, you forget about it. You come home again, you're tired, you just crawl back into bed, there's a roadkill, you know, just, oh. And after a while, it becomes your friend, right? You, as, as sick as that is, you kind of go, how could you possibly get used to that? People get used to some really crazy stuff. Have you ever seen, like, some of these hoarders, how they live? And you go, how could you possibly? They didn't get there overnight. See, sin doesn't take root in our life overnight either but we just like ah we just it's okay i don't really i don't really need to ask the lord to forgive me and to help me not to walk back into it and as sick as it is it's kind of like just we're just curled up with his roadkill he's saying no why you're, you're dead to sin why would you go back to it it's like proverbs says it's like a dog returning to its vomit Ugh, that's disgusting 
I've actually seen a dog do that. And you're like, ah! But is that kind of what we do? I mean, we just allow sin to, to take root. And, and God's like, you're, you're dead to that anymore. You, know, you, don't, you don't have to live there. Why would you? Why would, get rid of the roadkill, man. Get that out of your bed. So, here's a question. I'm just looking at where we are. So how do I get free? Specifically, we're talking about sexual sin. But this is true of lots of areas of sin. But, but if, you know, you're struggling. And, and believe me, again, I, when I talk about being single and remaining pure, I know how difficult it is. I always tell people, I did not get through there unscathed. It was, it was difficult. It was challenging. So if, you know, just having sex, or maybe it's just your, your mind, you know, the thoughts that go through your head. Maybe it is pornography, or maybe it's, you know, whatever, but if it has a, a connection anywhere into the area of sexual sins, God wants you to be broken. He does not want you to live there. Again, no condemnation to those who are in Christ. But then it says, for those who walk not according to this, the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And this is a big deal. See, Numbers 23, verse 19, it says, God is not a man that he should lie. Numbers 23, 19. Nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? In other words, God does not lie. So what he says is true. And if Jesus says, whom the Son has set free is free indeed, guess what? You're free. In Jesus, you are free. But in John 8, Jesus said this about Satan. He says, he's talking to the Pharisees. He says, you're of your father the devil. And the desires, desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. So we have to say, who will I believe? Satan is a liar. Anything that comes from the world around me, it says it comes from a father of lies. It says it comes from his own resources. He is a liar. God is, by definition, love. Satan, by definition, is a liar. So whatever he says is a lie. And we already said, how much non-truth does it have to be for it to be a lie? Any. Any. See, Satan loves to live in the mostly truth category. Well, it was mostly true. Well, then it's not true. As my sixth grade teacher would Tell me, we've got to remember that God's heart and his desire for us is the opposite of Satan's desire for us. What does it say in John 10.10? Satan's come to steal, kill, and destroy. Christ has come to give you life and life more abundantly. So polar opposites. How many of you know life and death are opposites? Right? It says Satan's come ultimately for your destruction Christ has come for your salvation and your eternal life, now and forevermore. So we have to say, who am I going to believe? See, we have to remind ourselves, this is not a battle of the flesh. I know, man, there were times I'm just going, Lord, I'm, just going to, I'm not just going to stop doing this. I've done that like with coffee. Uh, my wife would tell you that I have an addiction to coffee, and I would actually agree. Um, because how do I know? Because when I stop drinking coffee... I get a horrendous headache for several days, if not like a week. I mean like 
horrendous headache. What does that say? It means an addiction, right? And the old saying, well, I can stop anytime I want to, right? I just don't want to. Understand that, that this is in of itself, it's not a battle of the flesh. So if you're struggling in some area, specifically we're talking about that has to do with some sexual area, and again, maybe it's things that happened in the past, and you just want to be free of them once and for all. That's why Paul said in Galatians 5, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another. So, if you, so that you do not do the things that you wish, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. This is a war. A war. Now, how many of us have ever been in war? Anybody here? Nobody. I haven't been, but we used to live right next to Camp Pendleton, which is the largest marine base in the United States. And we had lots of people in our church that had been in multiple, multiple. And I would talk to some of these guys and and just hear the stories, but I could never really get it. But one thing I'll tell you, that when you're in war, it's not the same as all the training that you've had. See, they knew the difference when they were on a huge, huge base, and they would go and do training. And a lot of times it was very realistic. They would do these maneuvers where it was like, it was huge. And they called them, they called them battles. But nobody was actually dying. But see, when you're in actual war, it's life and death. And we have to remember that spiritually, this is life and death. If you are at war, like let's say right now, there's a group in Afghanistan and they're in the, the military camp, and the enemy sneaks into the camp, and they find, they discover them. What do you think they're going to do? Eh, you know, guys, it'd probably be good if you leave. You know, this really isn't the place you're supposed to be. Um, you know, we'll just turn our head the other way, and you can just go now. You think, is that the way they're going to handle it? They're going to smack that guy down, and they're going to put them and bind them up and make sure they cannot bring any harm in that camp. Are they not? Why? Because it's a war. Any person, however innocent they may appear, you're not supposed to be here. You will not just get to walk out of here. But yet, many times we do not treat our spiritual walk with that kind of viciousness. That we understand it is a spiritual battle. That's why Paul, Paul uses some crazy language. He does. 2 Corinthians 10. I'm going to finish up here in just a second. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we know these verses, many of us. Verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 3 to 5, he says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are what? Mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into what? Captivity to the obedience of Christ. This is aggressive language. We talk about, you know, putting on the armor of God. Well, who needs armor? Only people going into battle. If you're walk, working at Walmart, you do not need armor. I mean, I don't know if you've ever picked up a Kevlar vest that the military weigh, or wear. It weighs about 45 pounds. It is not comfortable to wear. Let me tell you what, you are not wearing that unless you know you need it. And if you're going into battle, you're happy to have the extra 45 pounds. Because let me tell you, you get hit by a bullet and you got on your vest, it's going to hurt, but it's not going to kill you. There's a reason that Paul used this analogy. 
One of the questions I ask people oftentimes if I'm praying with them to see something really break in their life is, how bad do you want to be free? How bad do you want to be free? Do you really want to be free? Because we love the idea of freedom. I mean, this happened with, you know, um, is it, oh, I always forget. Is it Margaret Tubman? No. Um, Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman. That, you know, back in the days of slavery, she was a slave. She got free, but she didn't just stay free. She actually went back behind the South and the Mason-Dixie line and brought other people. I don't know, it was thousands of people over the time. But you know, there were lots of people that she came to them and she said, let's go. And they said, no. And you're like, what? You're, you're, you're in slavery. Yeah, but, but I don't know what's going to happen out there. And I think many of us, the idea of freedom is great, but we don't know what freedom looks like because if you've been in bondage to anything and maybe even your own thinking for a long period of time, you don't understand anything else. That's why we get on the children of Israel. They came out of 400 years of, of slavery and we're like, they wanted to go back to Egypt. That's the only thing they ever knew for hundreds of generations. So it's easy for us to bag on them, but they didn't know what freedom looked like. They go, this is hard. Man, we had it pretty good back there. Well, they didn't have it good, but comparatively, because now they don't know what they're going to do. They don't know how they're going to live. They don't know how they're going to survive. And so I ask people, how bad do you want to be free? And people say, well, what do you mean? I say, well, you have to determine because Jesus has already said in Christ, you're already free. So the question is, will we walk in our freedom? And that's a really hard place. Because sometimes that's not cool. Sometimes it means I don't get to go do the things I like to do. I don't get to hang out with the people I like to hang out with. Sometimes you've got to sever relationships because you realize they're so unhealthy that they take me in places I cannot go. You go, that's serious. Yeah, it's serious. How bad do you want to be free? It means you won't do some of the things that you go, well, there's nowhere in Scripture that says I can't do it. Yeah, but for you, it's wrong. See, what Scripture says, it says, him who does what he knows he should not do, it's sin to him. And you might say, well, I, I mean, you mean say I can't go to movies? Well, if, if that's what leads you down a wrong path, yes. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with movies. Understand that that's part of what it means to be free. Think about the people who are fighting. Right now, like I use Afghanistan, they're all free. But guess what? They have put them within the confines of a camp, and they stay there unless they go out in force, right? They have actually imprisoned themselves to stay safe. You go, well, that doesn't sound like freedom. Well, yeah, it does, because they can, be, they can do anything an American can do on that spot because it's American soil. Understand, in Christ, you can do anything that you've been freed to do in Christ, but it means you won't do some of the things that you've done. It means you'll change the behavior of some of the behavior that you've had. Because the behavior's wrong? Well, for you, it may be. It's like, I was talking to somebody the other day, and I, I hear these stories of you know, parents, their kids, doing crazy stuff, whether, whether it's the video games they're playing or the things they're looking on the Internet. And I go... That's not the kid's fault. It's the parent's fault. And you go and say, well, it's easy for you. Well, it may be easy for me, but I'll tell you one thing. And we've talked about this. Our kids will never have a laptop that they can use in a bedroom. They will never have a computer in their bedroom. Why? 
Because I will not allow them the opportunity to go down places I know they'll go. Because they're kids. I expect them to be a kid. I'm an adult. I should be an adult. And it says, guess what? You're no longer in sin. Don't act like it. You go, well, that may not be fun. No, sometimes it's not fun. But is it worth being free? Guess what? There's some, you know, some people in prison actually get to do some things they probably can't do on the outside. Because they actually get th- certain things in the prison system, like working out. They get all this time. They can work out. They can, you know, they get three meals a day. I mean, all these things. Is it fun being in prison? No, but they get used to it. And there's certain things they actually have access to they may not have access to when they get out. But you're going, but would you want to be back in prison? No. Even if it costs you? No, because I'm free now. So understand, in Christ, we're free. I'm going to just close with that thought. There's a bunch of other stuff that I want to talk about. But, you know, we do uh, a discipleship class. It's called Operation Solid Lives. We're just finishing up one of them uh, this Wednesday. But one of the things that makes this so powerful is because of this principle. That to be in it, you have to almost eliminate all media from your life. Now, that's a challenge. And I can say it's a challenge. I, I've actually, I have, to, I have to admit, I failed miserably this week. It's March Madness, and I'm, I've, I've failed miserably. But the idea is you can only have two hours of media per week. And some people go, well, man, that's really legalistic. Well, no, 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 no. It's, the idea behind it is this. We've got this, you know, fire hose of rubbish that's flowing into our lives constantly. Everywhere we go, through the media, internet, music, movies, TV, whatever, all these different places. And we say, you know what, we're going to sever that off. And in its place, we're going to put the Word. We're going to put prayer. We're going to put journaling what the Spirit's speaking to me as I'm reading the Word. I'm going, to, I'm going to replace all the junk with the life-transforming power of God through His Word. And something miraculous happens. We're transformed. Well, it's not surprising, right? And, and so, a lot of times we've got just all this rubbish blowing into our lives. And we wonder, how come I can't be free? Well, sometimes you've got to take some radical choices to be free. Remember seeing the guy, well, that's been a number of years ago now, where he was out by himself. He was, uh, he was doing some rock climbing, and he fell. And, and some rocks fell, and it pinched his arm between rocks. And all he had was a pocket knife. And he's sitting there for a couple of days. And he realizes he's where no one is ever going to find him. And he makes this drastic decision that you just go, this is insane. He actually has to end up severing off his own arm... With a pocket knife. I mean, I'm like, dude, that's insane. Yeah, but it was either that or die. It was either that or not be free. And I think, understand that sometimes it, freedom is a bigger cost than bondage. But why? That I would actually be free. And so I want to encourage you. I want to ask you. I want to challenge you. How bad do you want to be free? How, how bad do you want to walk in the freedom that is in Christ? That, that I can represent Christ in every area of my life. Again, get it right all the time? No. I'm the first one up to admit there. I know. 
My wife would confirm that. But that our heart would be towards Jesus. And we're not going to give place. You know, it says that I'll give no provision for my flesh. I'm not going to set myself up to fail. But in Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to set myself up for success to follow Jesus, to live for Jesus. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads for a moment? Well, Lord Jesus, um, I thank you that your word is true. And God, I know that um, to be free is, is what you came for. Lord, that we would be free from the penalty of death, of sin, of hell, and ultimately that we could walk in freedom right now, Lord, from anything that would try to hold us down. Because Satan wants to steal, he wants to kill, he wants to destroy, but you come to give us life, and life abundantly. I want to just ask, is there anyone here today that maybe you just realized, man, I've been choosing death for myself, and I want to choose life. I want the life that is in Christ. I want to know total freedom from whatever it is that's holding me back. Maybe it's been myself. Maybe it's been my choices. Maybe it's been sin in my life. But I'm just saying, man, I'm done. I want, I want to choose life. I want to be free. Anybody that would raise their hand. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Well, Lord Jesus, I want to pray right now, God, for, for these that said, I, I want to be free. Lord, it doesn't matter what it is. Lord, you've come to set us free. It says the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is what you read, to set the captive free. And so, God, I believe you desire every one of us to walk in freedom. And, Lord, I pray for every one of us. Lord, if there's things, maybe even we've hesitated for whatever reason, it doesn't matter. Lord, you see our heart. And right now, if in our heart we want to be free, Lord, may we speak that out to you. And knowing that whom the Son has set free is free indeed. And that we will make choices in our spirit to walk in freedom. Because it is not to walk according to the flesh, but to walk according to the spirit. Which means, what are we putting in? Where are we standing? We're standing on, I can't do it unless the spirit gives me the grace and the strength to do it. I'm submitting myself to you and your plan and your desires each and every day. So Lord, we thank you. We honor you. We love you. And we pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen.